I'd like to ask you to turn to the book of Ruth in the Old Testament. Ruth, we're going to look at chapter 1. If you're not familiar with where Ruth is, it's a small four-chapter book in the Old Testament. It's the eighth book of the Bible right after the book of Judges and right before 1 Samuel. We're going to welcome to an amazing love story with all the irony, pain, and high stakes suspense that you could get in four chapters in a family tale of woe. And wonder. This is no Hallmark Christmas story, but a God inspired drama with suffering and singing, bitterness and sweetness, destitution and deliverance. It's a story with, at least at the beginning, no foreseeable good outcome for a family that ends with great joy. To use what Thomas Brooks, the old Puritan, once said about something else, he said, to all the afflicted and distressed and dissatisfied, disturbed and agitated Christians throughout the world, this book is for you. This book is named after a Gentile woman, a woman of pagan upbringing. How strange to have a Bible book named after you. A story centered on a woman, Naomi, who moves from emptiness to fullness, but not before she declared that she was full but now is empty because of God's hand. This is a story that points us to a baby boy who's born in Bethlehem. Speaking of Bethlehem, This story of Ruth takes place in the city of David about the lineage or line of David. You have a disturbed woman used by God to bring about the family of the Messiah. You have a a man who does hard things and noble in his actions. You have birth. And you have a great joy. You have incredibly hard times that are actually, are eventually overwhelmed with the tender kindness of God working through very ordinary people. About 25 years ago, I came across sermons on the book of Ruth by John Piper, and they have forever impacted me. They've helped me see the beauty of the sovereignty of God in the midst of calamity while bringing great care. And, and Piper pointed me to an old hymn that I'd never sung, maybe had heard of, maybe, and I think you've heard of it, at least the first phrase of it. And this hymn by William Cooper was, or Cowper, 
was called Light Shining Out of Darkness, later renamed God Moves in a Mysterious Ways. This is how the hymn starts. God moves in a mysterious way, his wonders to perform. He plants his footsteps in the sea and rides upon the storm. Deep in unfathomable minds of never-failing skill, he treasures up his bright designs and he works his sovereign will. We'll look at chapter 1 this morning. And each week we'll take another chapter through December 24th, Christmas Eve. And so I want to read through this chapter, pointing out these themes of what's going on in this chapter. And I don't want to get ahead of myself. I'll kind of foreshadow what's going on in these next chapters. And I encourage you to each week, maybe each day, read a section of Ruth. We'll be in Ruth 2 next week. Here's Ruth 1. Ruth 1. I entitle this chapter, Bitter Times, or Bitter Providence and Sovereign Grace. Verse 1. I guess this is all under the category of, number one, the misery of Naomi. The misery of Naomi. In the days when the judges ruled. You know the judges are? that You could just turn back to the chapter before, the book before, and the very last verse of the judges brings us to what the days of the judges, when they ruled, what things were about. It says here, in those days, the days of the judges, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. Judges 21, 25. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. And a man of Bethlehem in Judah Judah, went to sojourn, went to pilgrim in the country of Moab. He and his wife and his two sons, the name of the man was Elimelech. Literally, that meant, God is my king. So in the days in which there were no kings, a man named God is my king, he leaves the land of Bethlehem in Judah, and he goes to Moab. Verse 2, the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife, Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Malon and Chilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem in Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died. She was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives. The name of the one was Orpah. The name of the other, Ruth. They lived there about ten years, and both Malon and Chilion died. So that the woman was left, that's Naomi, was left without her two sons and her husband. Do you see the misery here, the calamity? This is only four chapters, and it covers a large span of life and day after day of of trials and triumphs. And so we have to look and stare at these verses, and you see the misery and calamity. There's a famine, probably the judgment of God. 
This is the time of the judges, and it said, God promised that when you go and you turn to the other gods, that's what was happening in the book of Judges, when God's people turns away from God and they go after the gods of the nations, God says, when you do that, I'm going to close up the storehouse of heaven, and I'm going to stop the rains, and I'm going to stop things to happen. He said in Deuteronomy 28, if you do not obey, if you obey the voice of God, I'm going to bless you. But if you disobey, cursed shall be the fruit of your womb and the fruit of the ground and increase of your herds and your flock. Cursed shall you come in and go out. So they have a famine. I can't imagine living in a time of famine when you are so dependent on this. They were maybe starving. So that's trial one. So what do we do? There is no reference to the fact that they prayed. They might have. They decide that the best course of action, and I don't know if it's Elimelech that decided, or his wife suggested it, or they both agreed, or he said we're going to do it, and she just said, okay. Or she said, we should do it. we got to take care of our family. They said, let's leave our homeland, and let's go to this place called Moab. I hear that there's provision there. And they might have gone through the conversation and saying, but you know about the Moabites, don't you? The Moabites are the people in which we're not to have association with. Deuteronomy 23, no Ammonite or Moabite, that's a person from Moab, may enter the assembly of the Lord Even to the 10th generation, none of them may enter the assembly of the Lord forever because they did not meet you with bread and water on the way when you came out of Egypt and because they hired against you Balaam, the son of Beor, to curse you. God said to them, stay away from them. They they did not welcome you. There's a judgment on them, and they will have a negative influence on you. Let's go to Moab. So they go to Moab. And in Moab, Naomi's husband, Elimelech, dies. Is it the judgment of God? Again, it doesn't say it is, but it does say that God is in this. And then her sons... Mary, Moabite wives, Orpah and Ruth. Now, this is a tragedy to Naomi. She has sons. God has made it very clear not to intermarry with the nations. And the fact that her sons are now marrying foreign Moabite wives, women that were part of a people that are not to enter the assembly of the Lord, things are not looking really good in the situation for Naomi. It gets worse. Son one, son two, equals all the children she had, they die. Her daughter-in-law's must have been barren. I'm just guessing that. It's silent, but they didn't have any children yet. Usually if they're married, they're having children, and so their wombs had been closed. They weren't able to have children, and so she's got no children, no grandchildren to carry on the name. There are no men in her family now. She's left with two pagan women, her daughter-in-laws, 
She's in a foreign land, far away from home. Things worked out really good to go to Moab, didn't it? You know, our crosses sometimes, have you ever felt this way in your life where trial comes after trial after trial? And you sigh and you go, it did have to happen. It's just, when it rains, it pours. When it storms, it just keeps storming. Or as Brooks writes in his, his exer- exhortation to encourage Christians, but remind them of trials, our crosses, that's what he called these trials, our crosses seldom come as single. They come treading on the heels one after another. They're like April showers. Like, is it going to ever dry up here or in the fall this year? No sooner is one over, but another comes. And so we just, we see this and we just have to go, we got to feel the weight, the misery of Naomi. Now, how does she respond? I, I, don't, I, I don't wonder how I would respond if I, if I, or how I'd feel if I experienced what Naomi experienced. She gets uprooted, leaves her family land, goes to a pagan land. Her husband dies. Her sons marry Moabite women. They don't have children Her sons die. She's in despair. There's no hope. My life is over. My life is cursed. God must hate me. Let's look at verse 6 as we begin to see the despair of Naomi. Then she arose with her daughter-in-law, her daughters-in-law, to return from the country of Moab, for she had heard that the fields of Moab... In the fields of Moab, that this, this is an, a beautiful phrase. God does this. The Lord had visited his people and given them food. The reason why we have provision is because God visits us. He ministers to us. He visits us in rescuing, life-giving, providing ways. And she hears word that the Lord, Yahweh, had visited his people and given them food So she set out from the place where she was with her two daughters-in-law, and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah, to her hometown in Bethlehem. But Naomi said to her two daughter-in-laws, go return each of you to her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. And may the Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you in the house of her husband. Meaning, you go find a husband again. Go back to your home. Get, get a second life. Get a new, renew things as the way we are. I'm leaving. You shouldn't go with me. There's no future with me here. The Lord grant that you may find rest. And, and then she kissed them, and they lifted up their voices and wept. In verse 10, and they said to her, no. We will return with you to your people. And Naomi said, turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters. Go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. At least have a husband and a child from that husband. If I should say I have hope, even I should have a husband this night and should bear sons. Would you therefore wait until they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters. 
for it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone against me. Then the daughter-in-laws, they lifted up their voices and they wept again. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. And she said, see, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. So she is in great despair. I know that many of you in this room either have gone through great despair or are maybe perhaps in great despair right now. Naomi, in her grief, tells her daughters-in-law to go back to their families and, it says, to their gods. What is she thinking? She knew, I, I think she knew that there's only one God and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart. And one of the things so unique to the Israel God is he's the God not just of a tribe, but of the whole world. He is the maker of all the world. And he is all the nations. In fact, they knew that God called Abraham so that the whole world would be blessed through Abraham. And what is she thinking as she tells these daughter-in-laws, just go back. I don't know what's going on in Naomi's heart or mind, but I think we can all relate to the fact that when we are devastated and discouraged, we don't think right. We don't either think clearly or think accurately, and sometimes we think with poor views of theology. She says, there's no hope where I'm going. Don't come with me. Maybe she thought, you're going to just be a drag on my life too. That's two more mouths to feed. And I got an answer for you. It's going to be embarrassing. I got these two wives. They're Moabites. They're not supposed to assemble with God's people, according to Deuteronomy, if we even care about what God's word says. But all of this, and I, I do think that in her despair, she's lacking faith. She's hopeless at this point. You know, hopeless, like there is no way, it's done. I, I see no, using Mike's analogy, there is no light at the end of the tunnel. And if there is a light, it's just a train that's bearing down on me and just going to crush me. It's the next calamity that's coming. It's the next way of God crushing me. This is not unfamiliar to the experiences of people in this world, including God's people, in which trial after trial come to the point that we are falling on our back or are on our face and we say, God has exceedingly been hard to me and his hand is against me and has gone out against me. Naomi cannot imagine her situation being fixed or remedied. This is one of the ways in which God has chosen to work with God's people. He brings them to a place where it doesn't look like it can be remedied. It cannot be fixed. Look at Abraham. Abraham, you're going to have a son through this woman, Sarah. But he's 90. I'm 100. There's no way that's going to happen. How is that going to happen? I'm a God who raises the dead. 
I'm God that brings something out of nothing. How in the world is God going to fulfill the dreams that Joseph had and raise Joseph up? He's in a dungeon in Egypt. I sent him there to make his life seem impossible and to raise him up to bring deliverance. Story after story we see in the Bible of God bringing his people to a hopeless situation. You see in this passage that Naomi interprets God's situ- the situation with God. Naomi believes that God is sovereign. God's in charge. He's over all. He rules all. His power can do anything he wants. She sees God as sovereign, but she does not see God as good. At least not good to her. And I wonder if you've been there or are there. Her theology wavers as she tells her girls, just go to another God. Go back to your gods. She may have prayed, but it doesn't say she prayed. She might have. But we see scripture after scripture, when God's people find themselves in this despair, they cry out to the Lord. She despairs, and she complains about God, not to God. We won't be too hard on Naomi. We know the brokenness of ourselves, and we can do the same thing. I think that her lack of faith and her weakness in this moment in how she responds, and as we get to the end of the story, her redemption in the grace of God even just makes God's grace shine even brighter. She's not this prayer warrior in chapter one saying, I know my God will deliver She's like, my God's hand is against me. Stay away from me. I'm cursed. You see, she does what it's so easy for us to do. She judges God's care by what she can see and by whether her desires are being met. God had a bigger desires. God has a bigger plan, a glorious plan, and we see it unfolding in this chapter. This is often how we feel. We're in a painful situation. We can't imagine a way out. It's hopeless. It's impossible. And Joseph may have felt that way in Potiphar's home or in the dungeon. Jonah in the whale, (laughs) he cries out to God in repentance The children of Israel groan out to God as they're enslaved in Egypt. And then when they get out of Egypt and they're at the Red Sea in Exodus 14 and Pharaoh's chariots are bearing down on them, they cry out to the Lord. You see the misery and despair of this woman. Now now that brings us to verse 16. And, And I like Either the way the English translations bring this out, both in the Old Testament and New Testament, there are times when you're just like, you love that conjunction, you love that transition of but, B-U-T, but Ruth. I want you to see the loyal love of Ruth in verses 16 through 8. It already started in verse 14. But Ruth said, do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. There I will be buried. May the Lord, Yahweh, the name of Israel, 
in Israel's God, may the Lord do so to me and more also if anything but death parts me from you. And when, when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said no more. I love that, but Ruth. It says a few verses earlier, verse 14, but Ruth clung to her. In this in this passage, we have the loyal love of Ruth, and I call it a loyal type of love because that is the idea behind a word we find in the Old Testament called hesed. I've mentioned this in the Psalms many times. The hesed love of God is often translated kindness or steadfast love. It's not used of Ruth here, but it's illustrated by Ruth. Ruth shows a type of loyalty of clinging to Naomi and saying, I'm going to cling to you. I'm not going to let you go. And it's the very idea in which God told his people to cling and lay hold of him in all of their lands, in all of their places, in all of their tribes. Cling to me. It says, but Ruth clung to Naomi, her mother-in-law. And it says here, that she said, and we use part of these words in our marriage vows. She said, your people will be my people. Your God will be my God. Where you die, I will die. And where you buried, I will bury. I am putting my lot with you. I am not going to go back. I'm burning the bridges. I am going to Israel because your God is my God. What happened? I don't know. Whether it be when these daughter-in-laws entered into the family they came to know that there was a God that was so much greater than Kamesh, the God that was worshipped by the Moabites, including human sacrifices. They realized there was a God who is the maker of heaven and earth. It was the same God that delivered the people out of Israel. This God who called Abraham out of the pagan land and showed him that he was a true, that God was going to care for him and multiply him. Whatever it is, they came to know and see and believe this God in a glorious way. And Ruth had come to know this. And she says, I am putting my loyalty to you and to your God. And so if I die, I'll die with you. Marriage isn't going to separate me. All of this, I am going to you. And Ruth does that. I wonder at the moment if Naomi was thinking, great. It's not what I really thought would be the best in the midst of her grief, but she received it. Ruth is an amazing person. We're going to see that in the next two chapters especially. Ruth is a character, a beautiful hero in the story, in some ways, a type of redeemer, in the midst of a story that has a lot of redeemers. And Ruth is one of the five women mentioned in the genealogies of Jesus in Matthew chapter 1. All of these women have baggage, whether they be unwed, pregnant women, a prostitute, Gentiles, adulteresses. This is the way God loves to work. He loves to write very interesting stories in which we go, wow. Because he wants, to, he, he is about magnifying his glorious grace and keeping us in our humble place dependent on him. The hymn, God Moves in a Mysterious Way, 
goes like this. Ye fearful saints. Oh, Naomi's fearful. I'm sure Ruth is fearful. Fresh courage take. The clouds you so much dread are big with mercies and will break in blessings on your head. The mercies are starting to come just little by little. Naomi doesn't see him yet. God visits his people. She can go back to Bethlehem. Okay, but I'm going to go back and there's no way I, these women, my daughter-in-laws, they don't have a future with me. They, it's just not going to work out. Ruth clings to her. God's mercies are coming. Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust him for his grace. Behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. God's purposes will ripen fast, unfolding every hour. That bud may have a bitter taste, but sweet will be the flower. And so we get to the end of this chapter in verse 19, called the return to Bethlehem. So when the two of them, verse 19, the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem. And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the woman said, is this Naomi? I just, I can imagine, I don't even recognize her. The status in which Naomi, her and her husband, they were landowners. They had all this land and they packed up and they left with their two sons. Everything looked kind of exciting. And now they go and she comes back. There's no men in the family. She's destitute and poor, and she has one foreign wife, Ruth the Moabite, with her. Is this Naomi? And she says to them, don't call me Naomi. That means pleasant. Don't call me pleasant. Call me Mara, which means bitter. For the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. There's no sweetness in my life. There's nothing in which I can smile about. I feel like it's just all darkness, nothing pleasant. And listen to her despair shine through or just bleed into these verses. I went away full. The Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi? When the Lord has testified against me, the Almighty has brought calamity upon me. It says, so Naomi returned. And Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law with her, who returned from the country of Moab, and they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of barley harvest. There they are. They're in Bethlehem, old little town of Bethlehem. You know Bethlehem, where Joseph went to Galilee, down to the, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem. It's the same Bethlehem because he was of the house and lineage of David. For unto you is born this day in the city of David, a Savior who is Christ the Lord. This city is a city where a Savior will be born someday, in which Herod will come and go after the babies of the land because they're trying to get after that Messiah. This is the early, this is the prologue. This is a work in which God is working through the ordinary lives of a family who are right now very destitute, including especially this woman, Naomi. Now, there are a lot of lessons we could just 
We just go through the whole book of, the, of these four chapters, and next week we'll, we'll jump into sec- the second chapter, and we're going to start to see these clouds that are right now over her life start to break, and you go, what's God doing? Is something happened? Have you ever felt that where you were so discouraged, and then some things happen, and you go, I feel a little bit of a break in the clouds, the sun shining a little bit. Is that hope? What's that feeling? Something's happening. I want us to see two important lessons. God's word is given to us to instruct us of God in his way so that we would have hope in him. And it points us to the Messiah, Jesus Christ. Number one, God is always in control of the affairs of our lives, even the hard times. Naomi is bitter, but she does get it right about the sovereignty of God. She is right when she says, the Lord has done this. It is no comfort for us to go through all the trials and say, God had nothing to do with it because he's out of control. He's not out of control. He is in control of the circumstances and the bad things that happen in our lives. And I say bad things. Amos 3.6, is a trumpet blown in a city and the people are not afraid? Does disaster come to a city unless the Lord has done it? Or Isaiah 45, 7, God says, I form light, I create darkness. I make well-being and I create calamity. I am Yahweh, I am the Lord who does all of these things. Famine, end of famine, death, emptiness, bringing them back into the land. All of God. Was it because of sin, all of this? Was Naomi's situation because she's being judged for something? We don't know that. We do know that sometimes God disciplines his children and it's because of our rebellion and sometimes it's just because you are walking with God and God, like Job, decides to test him and to reveal his glory. Was she in sin? Was Elimelech, her husband, in sin? Were the sons in sin? We don't know. But even if they were in sin, if so, this story is doubly amazing. The scriptures teach, like Psalm 34, we, many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers them out of them all. Sometimes that deliverance takes a long time and we don't see it very clearly until he re- rescues us and brings us to heaven. And is Satan at work? Oh, Satan is at work. Satan was at work with Job in afflicting Job. Satan was at work in the Apostle Paul when giving him the thorn in the flesh in 2 Corinthians 12. This doesn't say that Satan was involved. It doesn't. But you better believe when you go through trial and calamity, Satan's at least whispering. Satan's wanting you to think, yeah, maybe God's in control. But what does that tell you about this God? Would, he, would a good God do that? No. Would a good God that loves you and is for you ever allow that to go in your life? There, many years ago, God brought a little book in my life handed to me by an old pastor, and he said, Daniel, I think you need this. I think this will help you in your situation of life. It was at Northland. And I've shared it with many of you, given some of you a copy. It's called The Red Sea Rules. 10 
strategies or rules in dealing with difficulties. And rule number one is this. Realize that God means for you to be where you are. Oh, Naomi didn't at that moment, didn't feel that way. She knew God was in control, but she didn't find solace or rest in that. You see, the Lord, and I quote, the Lord occasionally does the same with us. He's testing our faith. He's leading you into hardships. And that hardship might not be just one year. It might be decades. He's teaching us wisdom. He's showing us his ways. Our first reaction may be to surge a surge of panic, a sense of alarm. We must learn to consult the scriptures for guidance. We need to take a deep breath and recall the deeper secret of the Christian life that when you're in a difficult place, realize the Lord has either placed you there or allowed you to be there for reasons perhaps known for now only to himself. It may be the chronic back pain. It might be the devastating divide of a relationship. It might be financial stress and anxiety that just doesn't end. It might be cancer or the possibility of cancer. It might be an unbelieving spouse or child. It might be insomnia. It might be depression and long-term despondency. It might be vocational. You had a job, hopes and dreams, and they're just, they just never worked out that way. And the loss of jobs. You see, those come... And then you have the little things that happen, like the car breaks down. The wash machine never seems to work right. The fridge is going out. And there's a stain on those pants you wanted to wear. What are you going to do? And your class notes are stolen. Or you left your wallet at the restaurant. And it's really, why God? Why? And the lesson, God is always in control and he has purposes, and he does allow hard things to happen in our life. Make no mistake, Morgan says, or he quotes A.W. Tozer, love this, to the child of God, there is no such thing as an accident. This was not an accident that was happening in the land. We don't know how they died. God travels an appointed way. Accidents may indeed appear to befall a person of God, and misfortunes will stalk our way, but these evils will do so in appearance only, and will seem evils only because we cannot read the secret script of God's hidden providence. So, this leads us to the second point that I want you to see, second lesson, God's loyal love. Let's think about it. God has a loyal love to his people. His mercy and his grace, his loyal love still shines through in the deepest darkness. Oh, it's, this is a dark chapter, chapter one. But if we stare at the text with the eyes of faith, and as we keep reading, but even there, we start to see just a glimmer of sunshine. We see the peak of the horizon. We see the beginning of sunrise for Naomi. There's an end of famine. God visits the people. And Ruth is following Yahweh, his God, her God, and she clings to me. And That very last phrase at the end of chapter 1, it says, and she got to Bethlehem at the beginning of barley harvests. 
is a foreshadowing of barley harvest. What does that mean? The entrance of God's redemptive plan in the life of Naomi, leading to a Messiah, leading to King David, leading to King Jesus. The bud, using the hymn's statement, the bud in our lives may have a bitter taste, but with God working in his people, sweet will be the flower. Behind our lives, there are often frowning providences, but behind that, God hides a smiling face. God's love and care towards his people is as though he's saying, oh, just wait. Wait till you see what I have in store for you. Not only will you sigh in relief, you will see how good it was that I had you wait and suffer because I love you and I am doing all this for a purpose. God orders and governs all our afflictions and some of those afflictions are to discipline us and correct us and to disciple us. He conducts all our braves, all our days. He brings our, us to our knees so that we will look to the lordship of Jesus Christ. God's loyal love towards his people is in Jesus Christ and it's under the lordship of Christ. To all those who come to him and find themselves empty by themselves but receive Jesus Christ, seeing that Jesus is the end of themselves and the beginning of a new life where Jesus is Lord and Savior, and he offers salvation by paying for our sins, by dying on the cross, granting us forgiveness of our sins, and giving us a relationship with God that means never-ending loyalty to God. Friends, God knows the end from the beginning, so we can trust him. God's word and God's people remind ourselves of these things. God controls the end from the beginning. He has much better goals for Naomi than she could ever imagine. Ruth is going to become the great-grandmother of King David. And God has greater goals for you than you do for yourself. He will never fail his children, even though he will let them feel like they're being failed at the moment. He gives us countless examples in scripture and history to encourage us, of which we must avail ourselves and remind ourselves. Whether they be Christian biography or the testimonies of one another in this room, in this book. He gives us promises here in this word. Promises in which we by faith hold on to and believe and we hope against all hope. God said he will do it, and he said he can raise the dead, and he can bring that which is nothing, he can bring into something. God has given us his son who died for us and who now intercedes for us even when we are in our lowest moments. Broken, discouraged, Jesus who saved you, washed all your, your sins away, will someday welcome you in. He's in heaven right now praying for you if you're his child. He's interceding you and at the right moment, he's gonna wipe away those tears and bring you grace. And I pray he'll do that even this month, even today. God's loyal love means 
that he has given us his Holy Spirit to work within us, not leaving us alone, but actually going in and digging in to the inside of our hearts so that we would actually believe with a belief that actually comes from him and is divine and have a love that comes from him that's not from us and a hope in him against all hope and a true fear of God that doesn't fear other things. And he gives us, in his loyal love, a church as a family, a nourishment of faith. Are you going through bitter providences? If you don't right now, you will. And at the moment, don't compare yourself to Naomi's or someone else's in the building and go, well, it's nothing compared to them, so I shouldn't complain. That doesn't help, ultimately. Don't just say, I'm miserable, but they have it worse, so I shouldn't complain. Your trial is a trial, and it's hard. Even though it might not look hard to someone else, it's hard, and it's from God, and it's there to help you grow and strengthen your faith, and his grace is present. present. The, bro- the book of Ruth will lead us to admire Ruth. We'll see in the next couple chapters, it will lead us to admire a man named Boaz, But we will never be like Ruth, and we want to be like Ruth. And we will not have her loyalty or faith unless we first look to the one who gave up everything and went to the cross. We'll never be like the admirable Boaz that we'll see in the next couple chapters unless we look to the one who is not just a redeemer like he was for one family, but for all the families of the world. We'll never be blessed like Naomi unless we look to the one who sovereignly governed the ordinary affairs of her life and ours. Naomi lost everything. She needs a redeemer in the story. We're going to see that in the next two chapters, three chapters. And she's given a redeemer. A family member comes and pays her debt and brings money and a man. The man goes to Ruth with God brings both of these things. And a son is born, and it's no ordinary son. He'll be the father of Jesse, who will have many sons, the youngest being David. David will be anointed king of Israel. He's the redeemer of God's people for a time, and prophecies were made. And so when Jesus was on earth, and he said to the Pharisees, the Messiah, when he comes, whose son will he be? And they said, David's son. Everybody knows it's David's son that's going to be the Messiah. Ruth becomes this great-grandmother of David. This book is meant to move us to deep trust in God. A God who's at work. A God that redeems. A God that cares for little people like us. A God that brings us into his loyal love. Let us look to him this Christmas season. Father, I pray that you would redeem us once again, remind us of our redemption, cause our hearts to cling to Christ, the heir of Ruth and Naomi, but also the Son of God. Help us this morning to remember that in his line, There was such disturbing pain. We will not escape that, but you will be there with us and for us in it, even when we don't feel like you're for us. 
God, would you help those this morning specifically that are really just, they're aching, they're lonely, they're plagued with sin, they're devastated, they have judged you to be maybe in charge, but not good. God, would you give them faith in you and hope, and would you bring them into your loyal love? Would you... Fill us with your grace this morning in Jesus' name, amen.